All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we work through this series, Ecclesiastical Schematics, looking at various aspects of the doctrine of the church, today we're going to talk about biblical preaching from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So let's uh, stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll look at chapter 3, verse 16, and then read down into chapter 4, verse 4. These are the words of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Let's pray. Our Father and God, the source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be open. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. amen. You can be seated. Throughout this series, we have uh, explored the various elements pertaining to the doctrine of the church. Uh, ecclesiastical, of course, being uh, related to the word ecclesiology, and ecclesia is the word for church, so that's where that comes from, etymologically. Uh, we surveyed very first, the first sermon in this series, we surveyed the mission of the church, and the mission of the church is to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life. So we simply must be about discipling the nations, and that includes our evangelistic fervor uh, in hitting the streets and going to the colleges, going to the public places, and it also includes the structuring of our families for the training up of the next generation of disciple-making disciples. It's kind of a tongue twister, disciple-making disciples. That's what we want our children to be, disciple-making disciples. Uh, and I would argue that you really can't be a disciple unless you are in that process to some degree or another. And as uh, Rush Juni mentioned earlier in our exhortation, that is our national defense, the family. And we, we need to be thinking more about that. We looked at the several layers of worship and what it looks like for us to honor the Lord in our day-to-day, -day, and also what it looks like for us to honor, honor God on the Lord's Day, assembling together for worship. And last week, we looked at church music and the various reasons why singing matters, why singing is important to God, why singing is crucial in the ecclesia of God, why, why do we gather and why do we sing, and there's uh, a whole lot that can be, you know, summarized from last week, but you can go back and listen if you missed it. In the future, uh, this series, we're going to cover, Lord willing, next week, water baptism. Um, and then after I return from Africa, we're going to go back and look at the Lord's Supper. We're going to consider the topic of prayer, uh, sacrificial giving, uh, and a couple of more topics related to the church. So that's just an idea of what, you know, what is going to be coming here soon. This morning, I want us to consider the task of biblical preaching. What is it that makes preaching so important? And why is it the way it's supposed to be? Why is it that God set this particular task aside the way that he did? 
Moreover, what exactly goes into biblical preaching? Uh, it is clear from the Bible that preaching and gospel declaration to the world takes on two forms or two main expressions. First, of course, you have the general preaching to the nations. You have our ministry to the world, to the nations. So gospel declaration to the culture so that the elect can hear the shepherd's voice and respond in spirit-granted faith. So that's one expression of biblical preaching. That's our posture towards the world and what we are communicating to the world. But the second expression is the preaching in the assembly, in the ecclesia, in the congregation, the church. That is biblical teaching, admonishment, exhortation for the purpose of maturing God's people. So definitionally, Biblical preaching is the conveyance of theological truths with rhetorical persuasion. That is logos, ethos, pathos, all of it, sort of the ancient Greek rhetoricians. But it's the conveyance of theological truths with rhetorical persuasion meant to edify God's people. It's meant to challenge them, and it's meant to urge listeners as a means of grace to align themselves with the authority of Christ and His Word. So that's what we're doing in biblical preaching. We're asking the listeners to find the time to stop, to pause, and to grow in their understanding of Scripture, to, to by the power of the Spirit, use, use it as a means of grace to achieve God's sovereign ends. So preaching is the audible sharing of good news. It's the reading and proclamation of God's law word with the intention that some sort of effectuating change may be induced in the audience through theological oration. We're talking about God's word, proclaiming God's word, so that you all are in this moment thinking through, what does God demand of me? How does God, what does God require of me? What is he asking me to do? Now remember that God gave special gifts to people in order to aid the church's sanctification and growth. That is Ephesians 4. He gave extraordinary gifts, extraordinary gifts, that is apostles, evangelists, and prophets, and those are no longer in use. Those were built to build up uh, until we have the scriptures. But he also gave ordinary gifts, and that is for pastors and teachers, uh, church governors, also known as elders, and deacons. So he gave those to the church, to, to minister to the church. We're, we're going to talk about church government in the future here in this series. But he gave these ordinary gifts so that God's people would, would grow, so that they would be helped along the way. I, I want to make it clear that preaching is important to God. It's important to God. He, he has established it for and by his good pleasure, and he has set preaching in the assembly of God's people as a means of grace. And part of it, yes, is maturation, but also it's to aid in church unity and holiness. It's to help us to be on the same mission. It's to help us come together to honor the Lord and work together, uh, work together on what it is God has called us to do for the sake of righteousness and justice and, and gospel ministry in the world and so on and so forth. That is what preaching is, that's the context that we have for it. When, when converts are brought to faith, they must be taught sound doctrine. They need to know what, what sound doctrine looks like, and preaching is one of the ways that this occurs. 
Now let's look at our text and work through it. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor elder. His discipleship program has been on the job training. Um, It's quite probable that Paul knew his his grandmother. There was some sort of connection there. And Timothy was, was a probably 15, 16, 17, 18, somewhere in in his middle to late teens when Paul met him. But as he's writing this letter, he's probably in his early 20s trying to pastor and shepherd a church. And so he was very young, but the Lord had gifted him to serve in this capacity. Now here, Paul is writing this to Timothy, but it's the Bible. The Bible declares of itself here that it's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. That is, it's divinely inspired. The breath spirit of God was involved in composing and organizing the Bible, which is all to say its origination comes from God. The Bible you have in your lap is what God intended to communicate to his creation. So the Holy Spirit inspired men using their particular faculties to write what it is God intended to write. He communicated what he needed to communicate, and that's the Bible you have in your lap. So the Bible is the inscripturation of the Word of God. Think of the Word of God in a larger sense of being God's communication, God's speech. And so when God's speech is put into written form, we call that the inscripturated Word. Now, the the Old and New Testaments, they are laid down in scriptural format like this because of the work of the Holy Spirit in history. So therefore, we conclude the Bible is utterly infallible, meaning it cannot err. Uh, It's impossible for God to communicate wrongly. The Bible is infallible. It cannot err. And it's inerrant, meaning it contains no errors. So not only does it contain no errors, Uh, it's not even possible for that to be the case. Because of its divinely inspired origin, the Bible is our authority for life and doctrine. So if you you take the Bible for what it says about itself, the authority that's established in it because of Christ, because of the Spirit, uh, all originating from the Father's plan, it's obvious that's our authority for life and doctrine. We want to know And this goes for any relationships you have, your own personal holiness. The most important thing you need to know is what does God expect of me? What does God demand of me in this moment right now? And that is a good question to ask at every turn. So God himself is made known by the revelation of himself in history by the same Holy Spirit who dwells and fills our hearts. As Calvin remarks, we owe to God a supreme reverence, and because the Bible proceeds from God, we owe the same reverence to the inscripturated Word. So that's why it's important that you have a Bible, that you don't, don't always just rely on the Bible on your phone. Have a physical copy of Scripture and keep it with you all the time, if necessary. We should owe There's reverence that is owed to the scriptures because we owe reverence to God. That was kind of what Calvin's point was. So you you should highly prize your Bibles because it contains the message of salvation. I mean, this is it for you. This is everything. You've been given Christ, his Holy Spirit. You've been given salvation. This is your authority for for everything. So you should prize it. And, And don't forget that men died to put it in your lap. 
Men were burned at the stake for translating it into English to get it to where it is today. Surprise it. Furthermore, because the Bible is divinely authoritative, Paul says here that it has a certain profit, profitability to it. It is, it is the perfect rule for all of life. Um, Gregory said that it's the heart and soul of God. Um, Augustine said that it's a fortress against all errors. Athanasius, remember Athanasius, he stood against the world. He said that it's the invariable rule of truth. The Bible is the wise tongue of God. It's a portion of his sovereign mind that's deposited into our hearts. So when God speaks, as he does in Scripture, infallibility speaks. And we cannot interpret the world apart from the authority and perspicuity, that is, the clarity of Scripture. And that's, I, I was thinking, I was writing this this week, I was thinking about our, the year we had at George Mason that'll fire back up again this fall. And that is, that's the difference between us and quote-unquote them, the unbeliever. They're trying to interpret the world apart from Scripture's authority. And our job is to say, you can't do that. You, it's incoherent. And so that's, that's the center of, of all of this. We come with the authority of Scripture to the world and say, you are all trying to interpret this, this world thing. You're trying to interpret yourselves apart from God and his revelation. That's a problem. Now, to try and do that is nothing short of autonomy, which is a sin. And that's partly where this isn't just an intellectual debate that we're having. It's, it's an ethical debate. There's morality involved. There's sin involved. You're trying to interpret the world apart from God. That's a sin. And that's something that needs to be repented of. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question three, asks this. What do the scriptures principally teach? Answer. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's what the, the, the Bible tells you who God is and what's expected of you. Now, scripture is the speech of God. It's God's voice invested with all the authority and power that belongs to his being. This in your lap is the voice of God. If you want to hear God, this is how you hear God. And as a result of that, it teaches us about God, it teaches us about the world, and it teaches us about ourselves. And that's why you should treasure the Holy Scriptures. Now, as Paul says here, the Bible is profitable, it's advantageous, it's beneficial for four things. First is teaching, he says. All Scriptures God breathed, it's profitable for teaching, meaning it's for doctrinal standards, so that you know the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the cross, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of, of angels. All of the doctrines we have come from the Bible. The Bible is advantageous to you so you know what doctrine is, what we should in fact believe. Second, it's profitable for reproof or conviction or rebuke for that which is false. So when you're in a situation where it's a, talking to an unbeliever, an fam, unbelieving family member, whatever, the Bible is, is definitely beneficial for rebuking that which is false, and you can rely on its authority. Number three, Paul says, it's correction. Correction, that is, it straightens out that which is crooked. So think of your life. Are there any crooked parts to it? 
<laughs> it, it helps us straighten out. That's what it's profitable for. And then number, number four, he says it's training in righteousness. So instruction in godliness. It, it, the Bible trains us. When we learn more about doctrine, we learn more about what God is, expects of us. We learn more about the dangers of sin, the beauty of Christ, all of these things. It equips us and trains us to act in a godly manner. And that's why the church's response to this abortion holocaust is nothing short than abysmal because they're not trained in righteousness. They don't know. By and large, most, most Christians who sit in evangelical churches are not trained in righteousness. They don't know how to respond to act in a just manner. Now, the most important thing we get from Scripture is the knowledge of Christ, the way of salvation. That is the most important thing you get from the Bible. The most important thing is, I'm a sinner, Jesus is a Savior, amen. All right? So wielding the Scriptures in this way, it teaches us salvation and it equips us or it outfits us for good work. That's what he says here at the end in verse 16 or verse 17. It makes us perfect or rather it makes us blameless and sufficiently prepared for the task at hand. And this is why Paul goes on to charge Timothy with the task of preaching. Because God's assembly needs to adhere to God's standards. Why preach the word? Because God's assembly needs to adhere to God's standards. The Bible is from God, therefore it is profitable for all sorts of things, so Timothy must preach it. That's what he's saying here in this letter. Now even though, you'll look in your Bible there, there's a chapter break here. Uh, they're really, the thought continues. So just because there's a chapter break doesn't mean that it's totally irrelevant to what has just been said. In fact, in this case, it's definitely relevant. Not only must the Christian who desires to do good read and adhere to the Scriptures, the ministers must preach it, and the church must hear it. The charge of preaching given to Pastor Timothy here is severe. In fact, there in verse 1, he invokes Christ's judgment and kingdom. That's strong lang language. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. He's the judge of the living and the dead. His appearing, his kingdom, all of it, what God is doing in the world. I charge you in the presence of this, preach the word. Timothy is commanded in verse 2, preach the word. Now this is a verb. It's an imperatival action. It's a command that's meant to be carried out. To preach means to, to make an official announcement, uh, to publicly declare aloud a certain truth or set of truths that are derived from God's Word. Here, Paul makes it clear, pastors must preach in season and out of season, meaning when it's popular and even when it's not. When there appears to have when, when the fruit is obvious and when it appears that there is no fruit, that language of in season and out of season is what you would expect. When there's an abundance of harvest and when there's none. When there's a great awakening going on or when there's none, which we are in that latter category right now. The opposite of a great awakening is happening. A great blinding is happening. So whether or not, whatever that's going on, it doesn't matter. He says you're, you're to preach the word. To preach the word. When things are convenient and going well, preach the word. But when things are not, things are troublesome. When, 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 when Pride Month is taking over and they want it to be Pride Year, 
when all of that's going on, you still have to preach the word. The preaching must happen, he says. And the preaching is meant to reprove and rebuke and exhort. And this sort of dialed-in, focused preaching is to be characterized by great patience and teaching. And why is this the case? Why, why should teaching happen and why should it be done with great patience? Because, verse 3, people might come along who are uninterested in sound doctrine. They're uninterested. I saw a clip. I can't unsee it. It was a pastor. This church is a mega church out in Tulsa. And during the service, they were just hooting and hollering and yelling on stage. And the pastor did a stage dive into the crowd. During, yeah. It's, not, it's all over Twitter. <laughs> oh, I, I have words. Um, and, and you just think, wow, like that's, that's what the church service has become. So you all want to gather around here. We're going to try it. <laughs> Jump off the stage. Talk about uninterested in sound doctrine. We're busy launching pastors off the stage to crowd surf. It's incredible. Now, sometimes, he admits here, sometimes people would rather have smooth words which tickle the ears, even willing to gather for themselves a whole lot of teachers to tell them what they want to hear. And in doing so, they turn aside from the truth and they run into the arms of error. So preaching the word with great patience is meant to curb this carnal appetite. Now, in the assembly of God's people, preaching is to be held in high regard. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. For 2,000 years, Christians have gathered together to sing, to pray, to open up God's Word, and to rejoice in what He has done. And that is all derived from Scripture. That's why we do what we do. And preaching, as a means of grace, is put in place to steer God's people into greater obedience. So that's why you never want to come and gather as God's people and say in your heart, I really hope my ears are tickled and I have nothing hard said to me today. We'll talk about that. How shall we then live? The preaching of the Word is not a New Testament invention. The ministry of the Word is as old as time itself, which is to say it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, the creation story. And God gave a sermon, we know, at creation that brought all things into existence. So when God spoke, creation began. God said it, it existed. And that's what preaching does. Preaching is meant to bring things to life because preaching is a means by which God's Word is is in all of its power, is going forth to raise the dead. That's why uh, uh, Ezekiel is told to preach to the valley of dry bones. All right? To preach to the dead people, bring them alive, that sort of thing. And that's what preaching does because it communicates the power of God's word and brings life. Now, when, when Yahweh spoke to Adam in the garden, he gave him covenantal instructions, right? He, he was a sermonette of sorts on faithfulness and holiness so that Adam and Eve could grow into maturity. Eat of everything but that. Grow in maturity before you eat of that. And that was like a mini sermon for them. Even Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2 verse 5. The prophets were all preachers. Jeremiah stood in front of the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles in Jeremiah 7 and he preached 
And he did it to disrupt the false peace that had lulled the people of Israel to sleep. Preaching was part of temple worship. It later became part of the synagogue worship. Jesus, Paul, and the, and the other apostles all taught in the synagogues. In fact, when the missionary activities of Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John Mark and Luke and all the missionary team, when they were in the book of Acts going into the world, that was usually their first place. Paul meets up with Lydia by a river there uh, in, in Philippi because many Jews would gather there for worship. If they didn't have a synagogue, they would gather there for ceremonial cleansing by the river. So they, that's where they went. Paul goes there. He preaches. He teaches. People come to faith. Ah, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. So they would go into these synagogues where teaching and preaching was happening and sort of hijack them for the gospel. You'll remember, as a young boy, Jesus was rather impressively teaching the older men in the temple. He was answering their questions with tremendous insight. That's Luke 2. Going back to Moses, we find a sermon in Deuteronomy 31. It's a reminder from the Book of, of the Covenant. That's part of the, partly what Steve had read earlier. The giving of the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy were both sermons. Sermons delivered. Exodus was really the first sermon on the mount. And that's the significance of Jesus in Matthew being a new lawgiver like Moses on a Sermon on a Mount. Unquestionably, we find in Nehemiah 8 something very interesting. In Nehemiah 8, there's a solemn reading of the Bible, which would no doubt shape the later development of the synagogue model. If you recall, Ezra, he was a priest, he organized a solemn assembly wherein the law, the whole law, was to be read, probably all five books of Moses. So they, they, they get together and they read it. And the elders of the people joined Ezra in the town square. The scroll was opened up. It would have been rolled out kind of like this, rolled to the side. And it was done so so that everybody could see. We're going to hear from God now. And he roll, unrolled the scroll and they would read. And when the scroll was read, everyone stood up. Why we do that here. And after opening and closing the whole gathering in prayer, the people said, Amen and Amen. So the whole week was, this took a whole week to do. The whole week was consumed by the reading of the law. The priest, in this case, had become the preacher of the word. A shift away from the temple priesthood now into a prophet, proclaimer, preacher guy. That's what Ezra uh, had become. This gathering of the this gathering of public worship, it was led by Ezra. He was Israel's pastor at this point. And during this time, he not only read the law, but he preached it and he expounded upon it. And so in many, in many ways, uh, it, well, it is interesting too. If you go back in Nehemiah 8.4, you can look this up later. They even built a wooden platform for the occasion, which may have quite literally been the first pulpit ever constructed. So Nehemiah 8.4, if you want to look that up later. Um, but this marked a turning point, though, in, um, in Israel's worship. It would eventually become first century Jewish worship in the synagogue. The temple, remember, had been destroyed. It was being rebuilt later during Jesus' time, but the synagogue model had basically taken over. But the only difference is that in later Christian worship, there was a single reader and preacher. And the preacher supervised and presided over the worship service, and other elders helped rule well in the ecclesia. And that was kind of how the church took some of those ancient Jewish models and repurposed them and reformulated them. Now, it is curious 
that in the book of Acts, the apostles exploded with preaching in both the streets and the synagogues and the temple. And their main agenda was the declaration of the gospel. That was the most important thing to communicate. Christ has died for your sins. Repent and believe. He is raised from the dead. He rules and reigns over the nations. Believe on him. They preached the supremacy and priority of Christ in light of Old Testament scripture. So in order to carry out the Great Commission, the apostles needed to proclaim the truth about Christ and persuade their listeners to trust in him by faith alone. And that's why preaching has to be evangelistic. It must point people to the only place where their sin problem can be resolved, that being the cross of Christ. Now, in the letters of Paul, um, he speaks of knowing nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that we preach Christ crucified. In fact, he also notes in 1 Corinthians 2.4 that his word and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Some, in Philippians 1.15, some are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Regarding the church and her officers, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching, and, preaching the word and teaching. And that's one text among, among many where Paul indicates that you pay your pastors, you pay your, your elders, those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's 1 Timothy 5.17. So there's a lot of talk in the letters of Paul about preaching and the posture of preaching and, and what we should do in, with, with the world and what we do together as God's people. Now, having surveyed the significance of preaching in history and having established its importance by looking at really only a few texts and circumstances, there's a whole lot that could be discussed. I think it becomes important to know what sort of preaching is desired. In today's churches, smooth words are preferred over against the perceived difficulties of doctrinal preaching. Uh, people today largely do not want doctrinal truths. They don't want their sins to be confronted, and they don't really want to grow into greater understanding. They want the milk of the word coupled with ease, and that is partly why we're under the judgment of God in this nation. And uh, I, I will tell you that in pastoral circles, I'm, I'm on the fringe of this, you have a serious debate about preaching in God's church and how long a message is supposed to be. And uh, we're the Twitter generation. If you can't say in 15 minutes, you can't say it at all. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I need 20 for an introduction. <laughs> um, you know, 35 to 45 is kind of, I think, a sweet spot. But you have some preach for an hour, and the Puritans would go for even longer than that. And uh, the question is, is why? why? Why is that the case? Is it because we are stayed up too late Saturday night, and we're just tired, and we don't want to, you know, we just want to sit there and close our eyes and relax? I mean, what is, what is it about preaching that has shifted, and I think it's because God is silencing his disobedient church. But we want, 
we know that the Bible tells us to long for maturity, right? To, to be spiritual in the sense of discerning between good and evil. So when we view preaching as just sort of a passive, oh, I want to hear nice things, then it becomes, of course, you're going to try to reduce it down to a 15-minute TED Talk. But if you view preaching as God's Spirit stirring my heart so that I can love and serve Him more, then, it, then your attitude shifts and it changes and you long for maturity and you want spiritual food. Hebrews 5.14 says this, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. If you want to grow in holiness, then you must grow in your understanding of Scripture. And if you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, you must be nourished by the Word, both in private and in the assembly. And those two things work together, because if the only time you're opening your Bible is on a Sunday morning, then you probably have some issues. You're probably not prioritizing. And there could be emotional distress, um, spiritual depression, which is real. It can happen. I mean, there could be a lot of factors here. But the point is, we should want to hear from God's Word. We want to learn something in the preaching. You should want to be challenged by God's Word. You should desire to hear the Word proclaimed so that you might be spurred on towards greater love and good deeds. Now, it's been said that hard preaching produces soft hearts, and soft preaching produces hard hearts. So if your stubborn heart is a slab of concrete, the only thing left to do is break it up with a sledgehammer. And incidentally, Jeremiah 23, 29 declares that God's word is like a hammer that shatters rock. So hard hearts are proud hearts. Thus, strong preaching is required. Right? If somebody, I'm, I'm really struggling with this sin. Oh, it'll be okay. Let's just smooth words through it, you know. No, you put that sin to death and you go to God's word and you crush that heart and you make it soft. Soft hearts require not a hammer, but a counselor. And this is why the Puritans would liken, liken preaching to the sun. Preaching is likened to the sun. The Puritans would say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Indeed, soft, easy words do not challenge the heart. Therefore, the heart grows calloused and cold. But strong words of doctrine and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness keeps the heart where it's supposed to be. Consequently, preaching requires some level of temerity and audaciousness. And we do not want to tiptoe around sin. We do not want to tiptoe around sin and wrongheadedness. Rather, we want to confront it head on. And you can, I tell you, you can grow a church on false doctrine today. Fast. Just do crowd surfing and some U2 songs, okay? You can, but you will never do it in a way that pleases the Lord because you're always gonna choose pragmatism instead of preaching and doctrine. You're gonna always choose, uh, what can we do to get people in the door? And that's, that is your mindset, and then you, everything you do follows from that, rather than what do we need to do to honor God and His holiness? And then let the chips fall where they may. See, what we want is stout, high-octane biblical preaching because this is the type of preaching that honors the Lord and declares the truthfulness of His unending authority. And I mean stout preaching not just in the church, but stout preaching in the street. Because you want to know where the hearts of unbelievers are today? Concrete. 
to the, I mean, layers and layers of concrete. And you will not get through it by saying, oh, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Oh, <laughs> so I'm good then. We want that type of, we want, preaching, preaching is the plow that furrows the field of the heart. So I have four quick points of application that we need to consider. So regarding biblical preaching, we should, number one, follow where the Bible leads. We should follow where the Bible leads. That is, wherever the Bible takes the story of creation, including us, we should humbly follow with joy and sincerity of heart. Follow where the Bible leads. Biblical preaching is meant to aid you in this process. It's meant to shepherd you into the green pastures of God's sovereignty. So are you afflicted? Well, then take comfort in biblical preaching. Are you comfortable? Then be afflicted in biblical preaching. But wherever you are, know that God intends, you to take, God intends to take you further into holiness. He's not done with you. He intends to do something with you, with your life, with your family. So following the Bible means loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It means repositioning your life, repositioning your priorities, your time, your money, in order to better serve God's purposes. So our, our lives are meant to be upended for the sake of God's gracious law and gospel. So wherever the Bible leads you, follow and go there happily. What does God's word tell me about this? Go there. Number two, we should believe what the Bible declares. We should believe what the Bible declares. Part of the reason God has chosen this means of grace is because we are prone to believe the wrong things. The first who states his case seems right in his own eyes until another comes along and examines him, Proverbs says. We, need to, we are prone to believe the wrong things, whether that's from Scripture or from people talking. And you end up believing the wrong things because you don't know the right information. Same thing with the Bible. We need to believe what the Bible declares. It doesn't take long to develop false doctrine. In fact, it's really a two-step process. First, you reject the God whose image you bear. <laughs> and then second, you believe whatever seems right to you. That's it. Reject the image, the image you bear, and then, you know, do whatever seems right in your own eyes. And left to our own devices, we are prone to believe ourselves to be the authority on all matters. We do. When you are the authority, you get to call the shots. You get to declare the sort of truth that you want to exist in the world. But we want to resist this temptation to taking matters into our own hands. Instead, we must believe what the Bible declares. And that means you need to know what the Bible declares so that you can believe it and follow through with it. And what does it declare? It tells us the beauty and goodness of creation, the glory of, of image-bearing man, uh, the, the radical depravity of sin in the fall, uh, the preciousness of redemption in Christ, and the resplendence of eternal life. If the Bible declares it, you must believe it. You must simultaneously reject that which contradicts the Bible, and biblical preaching aids us in this process, which is why the Bible must be preached in our churches and not whatever just comes to mind. Number three, we should teach what the Bible explains. We should teach what the Bible explains. 
believing in the aforementioned points as a matter of faith and trust. But here we're talking about the actual preaching and teaching that's involved in biblical preaching and teaching. So we want to teach what the Bible explains. Biblical preaching is expositional. It draws out the meaning of the text. It explains what the Bible explains so that we can learn how to better our lives and how to spur us on to greater obedience. And there are doctrinal explanations involved. Uh, learning about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the church, all of that, what we're looking at in this series. But being taught doctrine is the key to maturation and growth. Knowing more about the beauty of God and His triune nature and the complexity yet simplicity, like all these things, that helps us. If nothing else, it keeps your mind off of some stupid folly that you were going to participate in. <laughs> Because you're thinking, what does the Bible teach? What, what is it explaining about the world? So we, the more we know about the world, the more we know about ourselves, about Christ and his work of salvation, the better equipped we will be for life. So the Bible must be taught even the uncomfortable things. We need to teach what the Bible explains. And number four, we want to obey what the Bible commands. We should obey what the Bible commands. Ethically speaking, we need biblical preaching in order to align ourselves with the Lord. When Israel was morally off kilter, what did God do? Send prophets to preach. And I'm convinced that's what we need in America, the same thing. This is, this is good. It's good that we honor the Lord on His Lord's Day. We, we gather for word, for bread and wine. We gather for, you know, in this way. We need preachers out there, though. God sent the prophets to preach. And what did God demand? He, demand? he demanded obedience to his revealed will. I've been reading through Ezekiel the past couple of weeks. It's, it's just incredible. The, the language, for one. <laughs> we'll get, I think I'm going to talk about some of that in Africa. So <laughs> It's amazing some of the language that's used to get them to go back from their sin, turn back to God. The Bible commands us to repent and believe. It commands us to live in holiness unto the Lord. It commands the creation to cry out in worship of the triune God. The word itself cannot come to the obedience of faith. The world can't without preaching, and preaching doesn't happen unless people are sent. And that's, that's what Paul says in Romans. This is why whatever level of appreciation for preaching that you have, you need to go higher. Wherever you're at right now, Go higher with it. Preaching is an invaluable tool used of God to point people back to the fountain of all grace. Preaching is a hammer and a chisel meant to shape us into the artwork that we're called to be. It's a fire to refine our hearts into further righteousness. It's a furnace to warm our hands and a fan to cool our tempers. We must, Baxter says, preach as never sure to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. And what we're after long term here is experiential preaching, experiential Christianity. 
where sinners are convicted, where folly is staved off, where truth replaces doubt, where love casts out fear, where despair finds its resolution in the wonders of the cross, where the soul is gripped by Christ and finds its rest in Him, where joy springs forth at the thought of being a child of God, where trials are put in their proper context, where sin is torn asunder, where the people of God taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the sort of preaching that invites the listeners to drink deep of the wells of Christ's glory. And we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you this day. We thank you for the words you have given us. We thank you that by your spirit we can come and, and, and find joy and peace and happiness and stability and righteousness and justice. When we come to your word, we come with expectation. And we thank, the, thank you that you've, you've taught us so much. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would bring to mind the scriptures, that we would be faithful in trying to memorize the scriptures, not just to read, but to learn them, so that we can keep our way pure, as the psalmist declares. Help us to know what your word says, so that we can be guided by Christ, our great shepherd. We ask for your grace now as we have heard the word and now we go and we see the word at the table and we glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.